Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the premier place to get audiobooks. Check out audible.com and find hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres. And you can play them on just about any device, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, etc. And right now, they've got a terrific deal going. For listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. And you can get audiobooks by authors who have been on this program. Go get West of Here, the latest novel by Jonathan Evison. Or how about The Detachment by Barry Eisler, narrated by Barry Eisler. Or what about Half a Life, the great memoir by Darren Strauss, winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award. All are available over at Audible. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a killer deal, everybody. Available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is other people. This is it. This is the show. It's coming through the wires. It's in your brain. Welcome back to the program. It's great to have you here. Happy New Year to everybody. Uh, happy 2012 uh, to all of you, wherever you might be. Hope you made it through the holidays okay. Uh, it's all over with, folks. It's done. And we are now in 2012, uh, which is a leap year. So that's sort of interesting. And it's also the last year of life as we know it on planet Earth, according to Mayan prophecy. Uh, I think the end is supposed to arrive on December 21st of this year. So less than a year away, it's all going to end, apparently, uh, as if we didn't already have enough to worry about. So uh, that grim business aside, Dana Spiata is today's guest. I can't think of a better person uh, with whom to kick off the new year. She's a terrific author. And uh, she's written three books. The first is called Lightning Field. That was her debut. The second is called Eat the Document, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. And most recently, she uh, has published a novel called Stone Arabia to great acclaim. The New York Times Book Review calls it a work of visceral honesty, visceral honesty and real beauty. So Dana and I are going to be talking uh, about all of that and uh, a lot of other stuff in just a moment. She's a terrific guest, and I think you're going to enjoy hearing what she has to say. 
Uh, a couple other random thoughts before we begin. Uh, Christmas, the holidays, for me, it was good. It was logistically easy. No airports, no travel chaos, and uh, you know, sort of unbelievable weather in Los Angeles the entire time. It was kind of it was like seventy five and perfectly sunny every day, and uh, you know, it's like it was kind of weather where the air is cool but the sun is warm. And uh, we went hiking, went to the beach, took some long walks, ocean breezes, that kind of thing. And uh, I got to say, uh, you know, I didn't pine for snow or for a winter wonderland or any of that stuff. I grew up uh, in cold climates. I've lived in Colorado, so I've had plenty of snow and cold weather in my life. And, and I do like it. But the truth, uh, I think, is that the only time I really like snow is when I'm outside playing in it. You know, whether I'm skiing or I'm out playing hockey or something, which uh, I haven't done since I was a kid. The, the hockey. I, I've skied since I was a kid, but I haven't played hockey since I was really little. And uh, sort of a random aside, uh, I've fallen through frozen ice three times in my life, all when I was a kid. And I think uh, two of the three I was playing hockey. So uh, thankfully, nothing serious ever happened. I was I was able to extract myself uh, from the frozen water or, you know, the cold water. But I spent the early part of my childhood in uh, suburban Milwaukee and uh, we used to skate on frozen ponds and frozen creeks. And sometimes the ice would be thin in patches uh, or we'd be getting close to the end of the of the season or whatever. And, you know, I went through on three separate occasions as a boy. And, uh, you know, what's the takeaway? Well, I think when water is that cold, it's kind of hot. That's what I remember. I remember it burning. You know, it's kind of a painful cold. So uh, those are pretty vivid experiences. And uh, interestingly... Uh, at least to me, I wound up incorporating uh, those experiences into the very first screenplay that I ever wrote. And it was kind of this like trippy, weird kids movie that I called Roy G. Biv and the Magic Sniffles. And uh, I wrote it uh, when I was really young and, and way before I was any good at writing anything. Uh, I was probably 20 years old, I think, maybe still in college. And uh, I don't even, you know, looking at my work now and my leanings now, I can't believe I actually wrote uh, this kind of kids movie, but the premise of it was that Roy, this eight year old boy, who's the protagonist is really shy and imaginative and quiet and kind of nerdy. So he's like that kid. And he lives in this bucolic country town and he goes to school, uh, in kind of like a one room schoolhouse. So it's just, you know, it's just like land of imagination. I don't know how dated it is, but just small country town He's a shy kid. He's got a hype, you know, he's hyper imaginative. He gets made fun of a lot. His teacher picks on him a lot and she's sort of a shrew. And, uh, you know, to get to school, he had to walk a mile in the snow. So the, the movie is set in winter and Roy lives in this town called Hillsville. Uh, I think that's what I called it. And every day to get to school, he has to walk through the woods and he passes this pond and the pond is frozen in winter. And so on like one particularly bad day, after school, he's walking home, uh, you know, and he got yelled at that day for not paying attention. And he got picked on on the playground and people were throwing snowballs at him and just like a shitty day. And so he's walking home past this pond in the woods. And, uh, all of a sudden he sees these lights under the ice out in the middle of the pond. Uh, it's like sort of these like magical dancing lights and, uh, they're, they're kind of purplish and pinkish. And so he walks out there and you know, he gets curious and he walks out uh, onto the ice out to the middle of the pond to see what uh, all this light is. And all of a sudden the ice breaks under his feet and he falls through into kind of this like uh, surreal kaleidoscopic swirl of colored lights and like tinkling music, if I can use that, that expression. 
and uh, you know it's sort of psychedelic. And uh, the next thing he knows, he wakes up soaking wet on the shore of the pond or on the bank. Whether I, I think it's the shore, the pond shore, pond bank. Uh, whatever the case, he's wet, he's alive, he's freezing, and he walks home. And his parents uh, are very upset with him. They're you know they're like, what happened? Did you walk out on that frozen ice? They get mad at him. He winds up mouthing off to them. He gets grounded. He gets sent to bed. So that's just sort of the capper to his terrible day. And he goes upstairs and he's kind of crying and he's in bed and he falls asleep. And he wakes up in the middle of the night with a terrible head cold. And uh, all of a sudden he has this extremely violent sneeze in the middle of the night. And he winds up sneezing a creature out of his nose because uh, he's, he's now got the magic sniffles. And so he sneezes out this kind of like Jiminy Cricket type character. Uh, and it's, it's essentially a talking booger. It's this little green guy about two feet tall who wears a top hat and has a British accent. And he speaks in, in rhymes exclusively. And his name is the Magnificent Goo. And so the Magnificent Goo starts like dancing around Roy's room. And he's like, Roy, we need you. We're in terrible trouble. The creatures of Weeblewell need you. And uh, long story short, the Magnificent Goo leads Roy out of his house and into the night in the dead of winter. And they're kind of walking across this empty snowy field uh, under a full moon. And they go into the woods and they get back to the pond. And the light show is there again. And they go out onto the ice and they get sucked back into the light tunnel. And they're transported to a parallel universe called Weeblewell, which is a land of extremely creative beings. And, uh, you know, visually it's like, you know, it's like someone's imagination on steroids and, you know, and other things. So there's like flying polar bears and crazy stuff everywhere. And, uh, the key is that all the inhabitants of Weeblewell are essentially uh, artists. They're creative types. And there's a villain named Argon Hideous, <laughs> which is a terrible name for a, a character, but that's what I chose back in the day. And so Argon Hideous is like this dark magician, and he's cast a spell on Weeblewell, making it so that it's always cloudy, but it never rains. So nothing grows. It's just bleak. And all of the inhabitants of Weeblewell are therefore starving, or they're running the risk of starving. And it's up to Roy to save the place with his magic sniffles. So he's essentially got to save a land of starving artists with the stuff that he sneezes out of his head. And, you know, I believed in this idea implicitly. And, uh, you know, I still kind of do. I think I find uh, that once I invest myself in a creative project and see it through to some form of completion, I can't ever fully turn my back on it. Uh, so there's still a part of me, I think, that believes Tim Burton could make the movie. And I remember I was like 21 or 22, and I actually got a meeting somehow at a production company in Hollywood. And I, I forget what it was even called. It was just, uh, you know, kind of a small shingle uh, and some producer guy on Sunset Boulevard. And I remember going in uh, just totally green, you know, no pun intended. And I'm pitching this movie to this guy. And I remember him just looking at me like I was insane, but there was a lot of laughter as well. And I remember his assistant was this young girl and she was in the meeting too, taking notes. And she had like her fist pressed to her mouth, trying to like stifle her laughter. And, uh, yeah. So I don't even know how I got onto that whole storyline. I think it was what, like Christmas and snow uh, and weather. But anyway, another one of my early efforts thwarted a kid with magic boogers. And, uh, you know, just imagine it. Imagine if uh, Pixar made that movie. And, you know, just imagine visually a little boy having these enormous sneezes where his entire body is contorting and he's sneezing 
large animals and things out of his head. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I remain convinced that kids everywhere would love it because children love boogers. And uh, I think I actually said that in my meeting. I remember looking the guy in the eye and saying, kids love boogers. That's been my experience. And, uh, and I remember saying it really earnestly. And uh, of course, he wasn't buying it. He didn't believe me. Uh, or he didn't believe in my dream. So I was thwarted. Uh, he thwarted me. Uh, and uh, on that note, let us turn our attention now to Dana Spiata, who has not been thwarted, at least not recently. And, uh, you know, RIP to the magnificent goo. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right, so uh, I guess maybe the, the place to start uh, or, or something that sparked uh, my curiosity is Los Angeles and your relationship with Los Angeles because you do have some mm -hmm. history here. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it's a part of uh, your fiction as well. So, like, what's your, mm -hmm. what's your story with L.A.? Um, well, I, I went to high school in, in Los Angeles. I went to high school in Santa Monica and, uh, we moved around a lot when I was growing up, maybe every two years, two, three years. And, uh, we went to California when I was in seventh grade, Northern California. Or, yeah. Seventh grade. And then, um, in ninth grade, I moved to LA and, um, and then we stayed there. Some of my parents stayed there. So I would go, it was kind of, so I, the way I think of it is it's the closest place I have to a home in the sense that was where I'd go to see family and stuff and where I went to high school. Um, but I also, you know, I don't really feel any places, you know, I don't really feel, it's hard to call anything my home because I wasn't born there, you know, and I didn't have my childhood there, you know, right, no, but I, that's the closest. Yeah. I have that too. I have that too. Like I moved uh, twice when I was a kid and then I moved away to go to school and then my parents left where I went to high school. So I never go back there. All, you know, I don't go back there all that often. So I don't feel rooted anywhere, you know? Right. I mean, I think that's an increasingly common experience that people are, you know, move around a lot more than they used to. Um, but, I, but I think the reason why I'm so attracted to, I mean, LA is interesting to me. I think I just, it, it, um, I kind of had, I grew up while I was there and essentially became the person I am. My sensibility was really informed by being there. It was a time, those years of high school were really a big of who I am. And so I think a lot of, um, so I kind of fixated a little bit on LA, I think, from that time period. 
And although I wasn't particularly happy there, <laughs> when I would come back and visit, my mom and my dad, they split up and they were in different parts of LA. My mom was in Santa Clarita. My dad was in Topanga Canyon. I would just um, have so much fun kind of exploring it. So I have this kind of weird, you know, inside outside relationship. I feel sort of like it's not my place, but I also feel it is my place. I feel very comfortable there, but I also don't feel that I'm from there. And uh, so it's weird. I, you know, I mean, I guess you kind of, I think I write about things that I can't quite figure out, you know, that kind of, my my imagination is interested in it for for whatever reason and i think los angeles is compelling to me i wonder if i actually live there if i would lose my interest in it you know i like to go there a lot and i like to to think about it a lot um i love movies and i you know i love the music of los angeles so it's very exciting to me um and i like the literary scene that's in los angeles but um, if I probably lived there, I would, you know, start writing about New York or something. I don't know. Yeah, like wherever, wherever you're not. So, so why did you move, exactly? Why did you move? Why did you move around so much as a kid? Like, well, um, my dad. When we were young, my dad was a, a corporate guy, and so every time he would get promoted, we'd move. So we were in Connecticut, and New Jersey, and Chicago. We lived in Italy, and we lived um, Northern California, all that. And then when he he got involved in the movie business, and that's when we moved to LA finally. Oh, he did. Okay, and, uh, and he lived in Topanga. Yeah. Was he kind of? A, I mean, he sounds kind of like a pretty cool guy. Like you know, I'm, I'm, he is a cool guy. He is a cool guy. I mean, I think to a certain extent, it wasn't maybe. I mean, it was kind of a yeah. I mean, I don't know. It wasn't a tremendously successful move in the end, um, on some level. But uh, he is a very cool guy. He now lives in Syracuse. He's um, in his mid seventies, and he's uh, last year um, I moved him out here, so he's near me. Oh, okay. Well, that's kind of cool. It is kind of cool. He's he gets along with my daughter really well. So, um, he complains about the winter. He really wants to live in Topanga, but yeah. it's hard. You got to be near your kids sometimes, you know. Well, yeah, no. And Syrac- I live, I'm in Syracuse now, so it's very different from Los Angeles. I don't know if you know about Syracuse, but it gets lots of snow. <laughs> I, I, did, I did know that. I did. I've never been there, but I did know that it gets lots of snow, and it's got a great writing program, you know. It does, and I teach in that program, and it's it's wonderful in many ways. But you know, if you're used to many years of of seventy degree weather, it can be shocking if yeah. you're old. I think to move Jar- here, yeah. jarring to the system. Yeah. But you know, very jarring to the system. Freezing. That's, that's what it makes. Uh, but it does make me think. Like when you talk about having your dad uh, near you and having you know family near, and then having some sense of rootedness, like. That's not such a bad thing. The older I get, it's just because my family spread out, and my parents, you know, were you know they were they lived far away from their parents when I was growing up. Like my grandparents lived in Louisiana, so you know everybody gets all spread out. It gets difficult. It is difficult, and uh, my mom was in Cal- was in Santa Clarita till I had my daughter, and then she retired to upstate New York, which has been great. Um, so I have these grandparents very close by, and it really nice for my daughter i mean i only have one kid so it's it gives her more family you know yeah and uh and, and it's good they make them so happy the grandparents so it's i i, I like it i mean i don't want to all live in one house like in the olden days as my daughter calls them <laughs> you call everything the olden days anything that happened before she was born is just the general olden days right but uh but i like the idea of, of um you know, seeing them on the weekend if you want that close by, and, and then they can babysit for you. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. That's the key. You know, you can you can leave town and you know know that they're going to be safe and with uh, with their grandparents. No, that that's a big deal. I think it makes a huge difference. You know. 
okay. just for your happiness. Yeah. So, okay. So I want to know more about you as a kid, like when you're, uh, you know, living in Los Angeles and you're kind mm-hmm. of this, were you like an unhappy teen? Is that like the time of life that you were here? Is that right? You're like an adolescent. Do you know many happy, do you know a lot of happy teens? That's what I mean. I mean, just like, I use that as like a general, I mean, just, you were a teenager. So you were naturally just like, you kind of morose and like, you know, all that kind of stuff. But like, Yes. What, yes, that's true. What uh, What was your social life like as a teenager? And like, were you a really bookish kid then, or did is it something that like you know you gravitated to because you were new in LA and didn't know a lot of people, or how did it work? Um, well, I was um, we before we moved to LA, I'd been in suburban schools in, in uh, Northern California, and um, suburban public schools, and it was very. Uh, I was an outcast. Not I did not fit in. I was very unhappy. I wasn't um, bullied, but I was just sort of ignored, which was better than being bullied, right? But I was just, you know, not. I didn't have was it a lot of though? friends. And, You'd almost want to. I mean, yeah, I don't know. To you. <laughs> no, I'd rather. I, w- I mean, I w- what would happen is if you were sort of um, uh, an unpopular person, but you weren't a hated person. You you were always on the verge of becoming that hated person, right? So you were always kind of trying to be as 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 invisible as possible, so you wouldn't become the person that people would actually abuse. This was a this high school is a, a, in Arinda, California. It's a conservative, rich suburb, and it was it was the worst, cruelest social environment that I, I could ever imagine. I mean, it was just unbelievable how nasty and cruel people were to each other and uh, so I was being invisible was fine with me and, like what, what would, and what then would people we, do what would people do to like what were the kids doing to one another oh you've seen the movie Carrie right yeah where they all where they all just where she she's being pelted with tampons in the shower kind of thing the right. little the girl there was a girl I remember who was um you know mostly psychological abuse and I'm just talking about the girls. I have no idea what the boys were doing. Mostly psychological abuse, but um, occasionally sort of borderline physical. And it was one of these things where the teachers kind of were, were like they wanted to be liked by the popular kids too. It was a horrible, it, yeah, it was just a terrible place. Okay. And, okay. Uh, but why? But, like, so so I came out why? of that. Do you ever think about why? Like, do you think like, because I mean, like culturally schools are different. And like, do you have a sense of like why the students were so mean? Like, was it their parents or... Yeah, they were spoiled and and they're they're an underparented. I don't I don't know. I don't know why. It was a, it was a tremendous I mean, I think that when you're an adolescent, you are really concerned about what other people think and that creates I think a bad that's why most people are pretty unhappy um when they're 14, 15, 16. Um it's very hard to be self-possessed at that age and say I don't care what other people think. And there are always a few people who did that. I remember there was a girl I really admired. She wore these vintage clothes and uh, uh, this is like 1980, and John Lennon died, and she wore this entire vintage black uh, outfit to school. And I just thought, oh, my God, she's so cool. They just don't – you know, this is a very kind of – I don't know what you – I went preppy kind of school, very sports-oriented. And here she was in this vintage head-to-toe black outfit in mourning for John Lennon. And I just, I just thought, well, that's – I want to be around girls like that, but that I was, was too shy to even be her friend. It was know? like the Ali Sheedy character in Breakfast Club. Yeah, exactly, exactly. See, he, you know, he was so cool. I'm hearing you say all yeah. that stuff about self possession and not caring what other people think, and like, of course, my mind is immediately going to myself, and I'm going, "Oh my god!" Like I'm still an adolescent because I'm still like, <laughs> I think I care too much what other people think. Still, you know? oh sure, sure. So do I. So do I. But you're better than you were when you were 15 or whatever, right? Uh, let's hope so, right? 
or you at least surround yourself. I mean, the thing is, it's, it's partially about understanding that you're, you're in this kind of fake environment, right? You're with these people because you happen to live in the same neighborhood and you go to the school, but you don't have anything in common with them. And then you go out into the world and you move to a city and you could find people that are interested in things you're interested in. And then, you know, and then it's different. So um, different kinds of social Darwinism happen. <laughs> but at this point, it was just, you know, a feeling of I don't belong in this. And I moved around a lot. So I always had that feeling. I was always new. And the only time I fit in, I think, before L.A. was when we were in Italy and I went to Catholic school for a year. And that was a very happy year. Um, it was That's like Catholic uniforms. School. It Marymount International School in Rome, and it was there were no boys, and there were no, and everyone had uniforms, and everybody was new because it was all these international kids. So I was just so happy there, you know. Why were you? And there? then we came. Does that, does that work as well? I mean, just like work. My dad, yeah. Okay. And then we came back to suburban Northern California, and um, and I didn't have the right haircut. I had really long hair down to my butt, and everybody had like a Dorothy Hamill haircut. You had the crystal and Dale. I, yeah, I had the crystal Dale. I still was going on the, you know. <laughs> 1978 Crystal Gale look, and they uh, so and I I was just weird, you know. I just came from Italy, like how weird, right? So um, and I was chubby, and I just I didn't know how to what how to dress. I was trying to dress like them. It was terrible. And then we moved to LA, and um, and I went to this school in Los Angeles called uh, Crossroads. Do you know Crossroads at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that's... in it's a school and at the time it was very kind of arty and you you had a you picked your major so it was like college in the morning you did your classes and then the afternoon you could be a drama major or you could be you know you could pick what you wanted and I was a drama major and uh, it didn't have any football team (laughs) it was in an alley and it was full of freaks you know so I was happy there I had friends. It was it was nice. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wasn't school. happy. You know, it was it's a very good school, and the teachers are wonderful. And uh, I mean, it has its own problems. It has a lot of uh, privilege, and um, you know, there's a lot of issues. I mean, it did then. Um, I'm I'm sure it still does. Uh, you know, it's a private school. There were some scholarship kids, but it was a lot of kids with a lot of money. A lot, and uh, so there was a lot of you know that always causes weird. Has weird a weird impact on kids, you know. Yeah, no, if was... you give them a Porsche, like here's your Porsche, you know. <laughs> Welcome a... to being 16, young man. Here's your Porsche. Good luck. Uh, I, I remember uh, I was ta- <laughs> yeah I was talking. I live in LA, so I was talking to a, uh, I was I met somebody at a reading, and she teaches at one of these private schools, and I don't think it's Crossroads, but she actually has like Arnold Schwarzenegger's kid and Sylvester Stallone's kid in the same class. And I'm just like, how surreal is this? You know? like, yeah, we had a lot of, we had a lot of, um, of famous kids, kids of famous people in the class. And actually one of my schoolmates, the one who had the Porsche, was Michael Bay, the filmmaker, right? He so he had a Porsche in high school. Of course And you're just did. looking at him and you're like, well, that guy, Mike, that guy's got a Porsche and he's wearing he's, – I just remember wearing sunglasses. He's two years older uh, and he's got a Porsche. And you're just thinking, well, his life is just going to be a letdown from here. But, of course, he becomes like this blockbuster uh, filmmaker. <laughs> I saw his him life out. has just been one big Porsche no, all the way. I saw, him out. I saw him out in L.A. one night and he was like with some like <laughs> – woman and they were like both drinking like i want to say like apple teenies it was like they were like green drinks and he had this shirt on and it was like buttoned oh. down, unbuttoned down to his navel and i was just like this guy is just too much i couldn't <laughs> couldn't deal with it but we we were they sent my parents sent me there and uh it was good for me and because i i, I had an amazing um film teacher named Jim Hosney. He's kind of a cult figure. He's retired now. And he was just showing us these amazing films 
in as part of our communications class. I became, I think I switched to be a communication major at the very end. And you just you, you got to see all these great Europeans. He was showing us like Godard's Weekend, and he was showing us the Conformist Bertolucci movies. And I'd never seen any of these movies, and he just totally um, changed me, uh, changed my sensibility, opened up all these worlds. It was very different from Northern California suburbia, and uh, and so he got he really sparked my love of movies. Um, and that, so I, it, to me, it was a great school. Now we were, we were never, we never were rich. We were always, uh, living beyond our means. Many people in Los Angeles do this. I don't know if, if you're familiar with this, but it's a just way, way, we rented houses in these, it was just bad anyway. So we didn't have, um, I had sort of a lot, I was exposed to a lot, but we actually didn't have any money really. And we still don't. Okay, but so that was, so, was a weird upbringing. So yeah, that's lost. So is yeah. do you think that uh, do you think that having the exposure, what even though like the the money might not have actually been there, do you think that that was a good thing? I mean, it seems like in some ways. <laughs> no, it was a bad thing. You know why? Because I have all, I have, I I have the bad part of a privileged upbringing, you know, like slightly spoiled and everything. But I have the don't have the good part, which would be the money. Right. Right. Yeah. You got to see it all, but you're like, oh, wait. And then like Michael Bay like peels out in his Porsche and like turns away. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I uh, we had a, it was, it was, you know, we lived well and then we, you know, then it all sort of fell apart in this. I don't really want to go into it because it's not really about my life. It's really about my, my dad's life, but it was very, it all disappeared. Like just in a, it seemingly in a snap of a fingers, it was just all of a sudden everybody was, had nothing. It was really dramatic. Wow, you should write it. You so should write dramatic. About this. You should write I it. did. I wrote about in my first book, uh, Lightning Fell. I write about it a little bit. It's very fictionalized, but um, it's hard to write about these things because it's like they're they're so cliche, you know, that you can't even write about them. Right. Oh, you went to Los Angeles and you lost all your money, um, <laughs> but <laughs> you were living beyond your means, you yeah, know. Yeah. But uh, anyway, it was a, it's a it's a it's an amazing place, you know. There's a great amount of it attracts a lot of ambitious people artistically financially all these different things it's very heady and uh, has an interesting um you know the, the i'm interested more in the fringe the way it sort of trickles out you know into the corners where people have been sort of living on the edges for a while and uh, and there's so many interesting people on the margins and that's really what i relate to i feel i'm a pretty uh and that's why i became a novelist really because when i was in la um, I was thinking, oh, I want to make movies. And then I just saw my dad's life and I just thought, oh, I can't deal with this. Um, I also like books. <laughs> right. And you, I started out writing screenplays and then I just um, really liked the idea of being able to do something completely on my own mm-hmm. with no, without waiting for somebody to give me money to make it or the green, you know what I mean? Something I could just make and it would be mine. And if nobody else liked it, I would still have this complete object. You sure, know, yeah. here's this novel. Who cares if it got published? Great. But if it doesn't, it's still a novel. It's not waiting for somebody to make it into what it's supposed to be. Right. So to me, that's very appealing to be self-contained in that way. Because um, if you're dependent on somebody else for your satisfaction, your happiness, that's rough. Well, you know? yeah, to, just to get permission to do what you want to do. You know, it's just, uh, it takes a lot of the fun out of it for sure. I feel like the movie, yeah, the, the, the business of making movies, and especially the kind of storytelling that you would probably be drawn to. I mean, you're not making uh, action movies, or I would imagine that would no. be what you would be no, doing. No, Michael Bay's doing that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, like, <laughs> that doesn't seem like that would be what, you know, your bailiwick or whatever. But um, 
so you get out of uh, high school, and then where do you go? You leave L.A., or do you stay in L.A.? Um, yeah, so I go to college at Columbia in New York okay. for two years, and, uh, and I drop out. All right. Just like Jack Kerouac. Yeah. And <laughs> what happened? What happened? Like, so give, like, give me like a little, like, you know, synopsis of your time. I, I just, I just, um, my family was kind of falling apart and I was just, I just freaked out. I had like a, I don't know. I just freaked out and had to go. So I left and I was doing well. I mean, I really liked it, but it was also really intense. And I, I wanted to be, a, I wanted to be a writer. I was a, a studying philosophy I was going to be a philosophy major. There's a big core curriculum at Columbia where you take nothing but, you know, you're reading like Plato and you're reading Ulysses to Ulysses, right? In the literary, in literature, humanities, you're reading Homer to Joyce. And then in the, there's a philosophy, there's all these like hardcore Western Civ stuff that you're doing. And, uh, and it's very intense and very different from Crossroads in, La, in Santa Monica, which is what I wanted. I wanted it to be hardcore. And then when I was all done with all these requirements, I just left. Um, and I just thought, I really want to write novels, and I'm not going to – I don't want to study – I don't want to be a scholar. And I did, at the time, I was stupid. I thought you had to be either this or that, and I was very dramatic. So I just had to just leave and drop out and be dramatic. And, um, and then I moved back to L.A. for a while, and then I moved to Seattle. This was um, in the late 80s. I moved to Seattle. And I finished college at the Evergreen State College in Olympia uh, in 1993. And I, I lived in Seattle for a long time, five or six years. I loved Seattle. It was fantastic. That was like right was when like the, whole, the whole like music explosion was happening, right? Exactly. I, I, I was there for uh, this. It was wonderful because I was never – I'm not – as I said, I'm, not, I'm more of like an observer, um, outcast kind of loser – person i'm not a cool person and um however seattle was a place where even you know every it was a very kind of a sweet loving <laughs> kind of it was such a small scene that it wasn't there were only a couple of places you could go you know so you weren't it, it wasn't it didn't feel very clickish at least not to me well and it's and also it was a nice easy to navigate to it's easy to navigate right like you, you just kind of yeah yeah, there were only a few places to go and parties. Everybody was in. There's only a couple hundred people who ever went out, and it was always uh, everybody was in a band. If you go to the bar, like the Comet Tavern, which is on Pike, where all the bartenders were in bands. Everybody was just doing, and it seemed so easy. And and I and uh, I've never seen anything quite like it. And, and you could get a really nice apartment in Capitol Hill in those days for nothing, with a view of you know, the sound and everything. And then, um, uh, and you, so you could only, you only had to get like a waiter job and work two days a week and then you could just go out and have fun or write or it was a great place to be young, you know, right. except for occasionally people would get murdered and stuff, but otherwise it, it happens. <laughs> that girl from, I think, it, yeah, a seven year bitch got murdered. That really kind of put a damper on things. I was like, a, uh, you know, there's always a, the, the weird thing about the Northwest is they have a lot of serial killers. They have the Green River Killer. I think Ted Bundy's from the Northwest. There was just so it's something about the Northwest there. I don't know if it has a particular, but but that kind of put a damper on wanting to um, hang out after that. Yeah. You know? the, the the serial killers. Yes, the serial that, that, that will put a damper on things. <laughs> so no, I loved the, I loved uh, Seattle in the early '90s. It was really fun. And I have I have such good memories. And I wrote about it in Eat the Document. There's a the house this this anarchist house called the Black House. And I actually lived in the Black House 
is on Capitol Hill. And so I just put it in the book. I mean, it's not an autobiographical book, but I put a lot of experiences of Seattle in there and, and Portland and Eugene and, and uh, you know, all that whole Northwestern. Although I left well before all the real um, anti-corporate activism was starting up, but but Seattle always had a big kind of a political activist scene, and, and so did Evergreen, where I went to college. So it was all part of. I wrote about that a lot. Need the document. Well, yeah, and I feel like that. I mean, I feel like Oregon too. Like I feel like the Pacific Northwest has a particularly vibrant uh, activist scene. Like people are really, absolutely people are really dedicated up there. And it's been that way always. I mean, the Wobblies were very active there. Uh, you know, the labor movement's been active. It's just it's just something in the air. There's either serial killers or labor activists. <laughs> 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 political activism is in the air there. Oh, man. So, um, so in your mm-hmm. 20s, like, and you're, you're living there uh, and you're mm-hmm. waiting tables, and then are you writing pretty, with a pretty yeah, good, yeah. good amount of I'm discipline? Ke- Not really. It's very – I mean, I was, I'm going to Evergreen, commuting from, from Seattle – and doing some independent studies where I'm reading a lot, getting to read. I mean, the nice thing about Evergreen is you can do whatever you want, and, and there's some great teachers. And uh, so I did some, tried to do some writing there, and I spent a lot of time in cafes reading and writing. It was a lot of reading. Who were you reading? And some writing. Oh, it's reading. Well, I was, you know, I was really uh, reading a lot of James Joyce. That was really the reading. Um, uh, Ulysses was the book that really made me want to be a writer and Dubliners. So I remember sitting in cafes and, you know, taking notes and thinking about, you know, I, w- I wanted to do a version of the one. Wa- do you remember doing this? There's the Wandering Rocks chapter in Ulysses where it's all these different things are going on at the same time. And he uses Dublin, different places in Dublin, and he tries to make it simultaneous. So, so it's kind of like a movie almost. And I tried to do that in Seattle and I have my notes from it. So I was just imitating writers, you know, sure, yeah. and then, um, and then at Evergreen, I met, uh, my friend Jody Davis, and uh, she introduced me to this magazine called The Quarterly, which was a very cool magazine that Gordon Lish published. And so one day she called the number on the back and said, we really like your magazine. And Gordon Lish answered, the editor, Gordon Lish answered. No and way. He just answered You're like, oh, <laughs> the shit, number. I, I didn't expect you to pick up. You know? <laughs> yeah. And he said, come on out. Be my interns. You know, how long of a leash do you want? I think is what he said. And uh, and so we did. We just moved to New York. Wow. To go work at the quarterly. And it, it was great. I mean, you know, it was really fun. And I made a lot of I, I uh, made a lot of writer friends in New York at that time. Like who? Um, uh, well, let's see. Uh, Christine Scott, I met and Ben Marcus and uh, Victoria Riddell. And I mean, there's tons of writers that were in that uh, around Gordon at that time. And, um, uh, it's funny, uh, everybody, I mean, you know, anyway, I was a, um, the quarterly was a, an interesting thing. I read the slush pile and watched Gordon edit and we were really just the office slaves, but we were called the managing editors, but really it was all Gordon. But I learned a lot about, um, writing from his editing, watching yeah. him edit very much. Um, I took his class too. That was part of my pay. And that was an intense experience, and I was—I didn't really do so well in that class. I took it for two years, but I was just—I uh, just didn't really. It was a very narrow aesthetic, and it wasn't really what I was interested in doing. So I didn't. What was the, I, like, what was the aesthetic? Good, Describe like that. Uh, very. I mean, it's very 
I don't want to, you know, it's something I like. It's just not something that I was going to end up doing. Yeah. It's very language driven. It's sentence by sentence. And I'm a sentence writer as well. And I'm very language driven, but it was, it had a lot of rules. Well, Gordon had a lot of rules. You know, you couldn't name anything. You couldn't, uh, I mean, you couldn't say the word five. I mean, he had some random rules, but he had some good rules. And, and I was just, you know, his, it was a very narrow vision. And, um, and I, uh, uh, we, and it well done. It was amazing. But if that's not the kind of writer you are, uh, then it, it then you sounded fake if you tried to write that way. Yeah. It sounded mannered. If I tried to do it that way, it would sound mannered. It's like I was an imitation of an imitation of an imitation. He just, you know, there's some writers who just write that way. Um, like Gary Lutz just writes sentence by sentence, amazing sentences, and uses uh, syntax and language in, in completely inventive ways that's... Um, Fantastic. I, I was really interested in what I like to read um, most and what I was most interested in was the novel. And, uh, and so I really wanted to write a novel. And it wasn't really a class that taught you how to write a novel so much. It was more of a short story uh, orientation and more of a sentence by sentence short story uh, orientation. And so um, I, uh, when I left the class, I just said, you know, forget that, put all that aside. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And then I started writing Lightning Field. And then I just wrote every day for four years and uh, waitressed at night. And then I was very, I had a very strict schedule then. I gave myself, I had, I suddenly had all this discipline I never had. This was like 29. What happened? Did you just feel like, well, time's ticking. I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this. It's it's time to get going or. Well, this is why I think Gordon's a really good teacher because one is he taught me a lot about, about language and about sentences, which I, you know, I'm forever grateful for. But also, he um, he kind of pushed me because he was trying to shove something, you know, shoving shoving something at me. I mean, I was I showed up for class. I was asking for it, but you know, he was sort of like, "This is the only way, it, you know, you need to do this." And I f- needed to say, "No, there's other ways to do this." And so that kind of burst of of um, no, that's not what I want to do. I want to do this. Kind of pushed me into doing my own. Th- putting my money where my mouth is, you know, there's a nice original phrase. And, um, so I just, uh, um, so I think in a way writing teachers are interesting because sometimes it's just, you need somebody to react against, you know, you need someone to push it, to to make you pay attention to what your project is, to make you define yourself, to make you think about what you think is good and what you're interested in. And, uh, and so that's, maybe that's all that a teacher's supposed to do really is just be uh, consistent in their aesthetic vision. And then you give you something to measure yourself against or react against. Maybe it's not, you know what I mean? So, it, so it wasn't so important that he said, you're a good writer. Cause he didn't say that um, or anything like that. It was really important is that he was just, you know, I felt sort of oppressed by his vision and I needed to push away and make room for my own thing. So yeah. it kind of gave me some, some, uh, yeah, is that weird? It's kind of uh, well. No, yeah. I mean, I think too. Like sometimes, maybe uh, part of it as well might be that he's he's teaching in an aesthetic uh, tradition or whatever that doesn't necessarily mesh with with you know you and your particular sensibility. But just by forcing you to engage it, it, may, it might strengthen muscles that you you know otherwise weren't inclined to use. Maybe is that absolutely? Yeah. yeah, I think that is absolutely true. And I think you know, I, mean, I think like I said, I learned. So, I mean, every day practically, I think of something that Gordon said. And at the time, I might have dismissed, and then it comes back to me, and I'm like, oh, yeah, he's really right about that, you know. Um, and he, <laughs> but, um, but I, and, and I think he would be the first one to say, I mean, we're still friends. He's been a great friend. Um, 
and and we don't always agree about what uh, books are good or what we like in books. And he's not consistent. You know, his rules don't always apply. And I'll, I'll tell him that. And he said, yeah, I know. I know. You know, so what? <laughs> so, he, so, yeah. So even, but it's good. That's, that's good that he doesn't, doesn't take him that seriously. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, he's, you know. Yeah. I mean, he's he's a character and he's he's just trying to do he's just doing what motivates him. And right. that's really what an artist's job is. What motivates him is saying, this is what I think is good and I'm certain of it. And I like this and I don't like that. That's not particularly motivating to me, for, but that's what motivates him. And that's what he's showing me how an artist lives you know, how his version of an artist lives. In some ways, I think that's the kind of thing is you're trying to get your own practice and you're, you suddenly see actual writers or people who are really interested and passionate about it and what they think. And you surround yourself with them and you start to learn, okay, I sort of agree with that. I don't agree with that. And, and, and uh, this person needs to talk about it a lot. And that person never talks about it. And this, you know, and that's part of uh, how you figure out how to do this thing. Cause it's, it's, um, you know, you kind of, it's sort of an apprenticeship in a way you're taking, um, you're learning about some, you know, I've had very one sentence of pieces of advice that were very helpful to me. I have a writer friend who just said to me simply, and it's the right place in the right time, you know? Mm-hmm. And he said, just make writing your, your top priority. Everything else comes second. Right. And I, I did that. And, and that was the key for me. Yeah. I mean, you know? it sounds like, now, what was your, what was your uh, regimen back in those days once you really started getting going? Well, I mean, now it's all changed because of my daughter. Cause I don't, I don't think of writing as my top priority. I think of her <laughs> and then writing as my second priority, right. but, um, which is okay. You can still get a lot of work done that way. Um, but I think when you're starting the nice thing, when you're, well, what I did is I, I had, um, I would get up in the morning, I would get coffee, I would get the newspaper, I would read the paper cause I always got kind of ideas from the paper. And then I would sit down and write for three hours and then, um, uh, go to my job, go to the gym and then go to my job. And which was waitressing. And then I would do that for, for four or five years. And um, I would, if I tried to write seven, so the same friend told me, try to write seven days and you'll probably get five. And that's what I did. I tried to write every day and then I would get four or five. And, um, and I also would just start at the beginning each day and read everything. This is really from Gordon because I wanted, Gordon had the idea of writing, not his idea, but, but it's something that he thinks about when he's writing. It's you're writing, you're sort of writing back, you know, you're, you're looking at where you've been to go forward. So you're sort of walking backwards. So you're holding all the language that you've put down on the page in your mind as you go to create new language. So you get that kind of depth and connection deeply embedded in the language in terms of the, the sonics, in terms of the content, everything. And, uh, and by paying attention to the, to the sonics and the shape of the sentences, you kind of trick yourself into revealing sort of emotional things and intellectual things that if you went at directly, you, you would make stupid. But if you're, if you're kind of sneaking up on them, you, you find you're smarter than you, realize, than you, than you thought you were. Um, the work becomes smarter than you. And that was a big change, a big turning point for me. I had been this person where people would read my writing in my 20s and they'd say, they'd be kind of disappointed because I talked a good talk, but then I wasn't such a good writer. And then it switched and all of a sudden, I was good. My writing was good. And then when they met me, they was like, oh, you're kind of stupid in person. And <laughs> Such a disappointment. <laughs> yeah, you're really a disappointment. And I was like, that's it. That's great. That means I've succeeded. I disappoint people. And um, so it was really weird because it did kind of change. I mean, I'm not saying I'm that disappointing, but I'm a little disappointing. And <laughs> that's okay. But I mean, no. And then like, you know, just to kind of uh, 
you know, move the story forward. Like you published, you've, you've published three books now, correct? Three. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you've had an amazing run. Like, I mean, you're just looking at like critical response and awards and grants and like if for a literary, yeah. writer of literary fiction, you must be thrilled. I mean, like Michiko Kakatani, Michiko Kakatani is in love with you. You need to know this. Like <laughs> I read her blurbs. I mean, like she's not always like the, uh, the most, you know, she, she can, uh, I don't know. She, she does praise a lot of books, but like, it, you know, she really seems to love your work. <laughs> yeah. It's, re- it's very nice. I mean, it's been wonderful and I've been extremely lucky and, you know, and that'll change. I'm sure I'm due for the, the drop kick next time I'm yeah. preparing myself. So, you know, these things, um, but yeah, it's been incredible how, um, it's, it's, I still can't believe that I'm even published to be honest with you. And, uh, that, I mean, the person that I was, it, you know, writing in my room, um, as a failure after my life as an outcast <laughs> and, this, and now waitressing, you know, and and writing and then to think that it actually had a life in the world and then I kept going it's sort of amazing to me it really is yeah and um I I, I just feel very uh happy about it and very lucky and and and, I, and and also it's 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 kind of and I and now teaching is great too at at Syracuse because you kind of feel um uh a little bit inflated from the I, I'm away from New York, and I'm away, I feel kind of isolated from the literary uh, center of things, and that's kind of nice too. Yeah, you know, I I, I kind of like to be on the, the the margins and and a little bit off kilter. So um, it's good for me to always feel uh, that I'm sort of um, an outsider, or I kind of want that, and 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 I still feel that way. So that's well, you, good. It's comfortable, you know. I mean, right? That's like it's, yeah. it's kind of like uh, that seems like kind of like how you were as a, as a kid and then you kind of gravitate to that through life. That right. right. And you never sort of changed that. I mean, no matter what happens, you sort of so always feel sort of, um, that person that you, I don't know, what is the age where you, what is the age that you remember your sort of identity gets fixed? I mean, I, you know, there's some sort of things that you assume that you sort of decide about yourself and they kind of stay for a long time that's true yeah it's like i mean it's like people essentially are who they are you know it's like identity sort of like locks in at a certain age when you're a kid and you know there are parts of it that can change but really it seems like the essence or the core is pretty much the same you know for people well well, don't you find with your daughter you probably already have noticed this but i noticed this with my daughter is that i think that 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 identity really happens young i mean i feel my daughter has been this person since the moment she was born. It has nothing to do with how many books I read to her or what I dangled in front of her face or how much I hugged her. I just think she was just this person. Right. And I mean, I, I can make her happier version of that person or an unhappier version of that person if I'm good mom or a neglectful mom. But I can't really change. You know, it sort of felt like it was there. I don't yeah. know if you had that feeling. Yeah, no, no. I mean, already. I mean, she's 15 months old, so it's still like it's we're just starting to get like, you know, a little bit of talking and stuff like that. But yeah, like there's definitely a personality and she's, um, yeah, it's there. Like you just, you can see. It doesn't have that much to do with you, you know? No. (laughs) I'd love to be able to take credit for this, but we always say she's so sweet. Like, where does this, where does this come from? You know? It can't come from me. Yeah. 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 Uh, Well, and and isn't it good that, I mean, what if she was horrible and you're like, Oh great. I got stuck with 
you know, the serial killer baby. Well, because <laughs> that happens to people. I know, and, and you know, like it's a fear that you have when you know when when uh, my wife Carrie was you know when she was pregnant, I was like. We were like, well, I hope it, I hope she turns out okay. <laughs> it's I mean, I think it's a fear that people have that maybe don't talk about that much. But like, you do wonder, right. like, what if this? What if I don't like this kid? You know, right? What if my kid is a big jerk? Yeah, exactly. But luckily, you know, we we lucked out. She's a sweetheart. Uh, yeah, but there is this one thing that we both don't have an experience yet. Is that when people hit adolescence, uh, that other there's like a whole other part of the personality that comes into place. Right. So. Um, you have this personality until you're, what is it, 12? And then this other thing happens, and and then the final product comes. Like the hormones kick in, and the brain develops fully. And and that's where where a lot of people go off the rails, and that's where they become horrible, you know, and they never come back. I grew up with sisters and, like... uh... There's a lot of there's a lot of females in my family. Yeah, like my mom had six sisters and two brothers, and I don't know. Just I just feel like I was raised around women, and I remember uh, my older sister and my younger sister going through that. And I can't say that I'm like expert at it, but I, I sort of like kind of know what to expect. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. been a while, but I think like you know, I, I understand that like I've got about eleven or twelve years where she's going to really like me, and then at age twelve. <laughs> Things that, right. Things are going to shift. It's horrifying. Yeah. And then they'll come back. Like when they're in college, they'll be your friend or something. Yeah. You hope. We hope. But there'll be those years and they will have to hate you. Yeah. It's like obligatory. I so, guess. Wait, how old is your daughter? She's, is she? She's eight. She just turned eight okay, last so week. You got a little time. Oh, yeah. We're still really tight. <laughs> we're just great. We're best buddies. It's going to crush me. I'm going to be destroyed yeah. if she becomes a 14-year-old girl who's mean to me. If she does that, I will be destroyed now i'm trying to prepare myself because i wasn't that way to my mom i was really nice to my mom but i had an older sister who was kind of rebellious so you know i think i'm in for it that's my guess yeah i mean yeah you just don't know you just don't know and like the thing is you say that you were nice to your mom but like maybe like because i feel like i was i was fairly nice but then there were like some things i did where i was just like really mean to my little sister like just like mean stuff right i'd have my buddies over and she'd say you know she'd be bothering us and i'd I'd be like, come here. And she'd be like, no, you're going to hit me. <laughs> I'd be like, no, I'm not. Come here. You know, I'll never, like, I, I still remember this and feel bad about it. Cause like she like finally decided to come over and then I like punched her in the arm and it's just an awful thing to do. You know, she was like, you but do you, but maybe you had to do that. You're experimenting with, um, uh, being mean yeah. to sort of see that. And it, it affected you. And then, you know, you don't, and you realize that's not, the kind of person you want to be at some point. No, I mean, that, you just needed that, to do it for a while. Yeah, and no, then that's so true. Like now that you say that, cause like I didn't do it again. And then, uh, the other thing that I did that had like a really, like that really sticks with me. And I don't mean to make this all about me, but like I, uh, I shot a bird with a BB gun in my, yeah. front, in my front lawn. And like I had right. this BB gun and I was like home alone and I was like 14 or 15 or whatever. And there's just like this blackbird or this crow or whatever, just like in our front lawn. And I take the gun, I open the front door and I was, you know, I was acting like I was some sort of like soldier or something. And I, you know, I'm not even a good shot. I didn't grow up hunting or anything like that, but I shot this bird and like hit it and killed it. And then I remember uh. I felt 
awful. Like I buried it and like was crying. <laughs> yeah, that's a classic, you know, rite of passage. I think yeah. for a lot of people, those kinds of experiences. Yeah. So it is. It, it, that's why people are so miserable during those years because you have so much you have to figure out, and yeah. it's hard. And then you're supposed to go to school, and you're supposed to figure out how to get into college and take all these tests. I mean, it's just a terrible. What we do, how we raise our kids is terrible, I think. All this pressure we put on them right when they're trying to figure out how to be a good person. I just wish it wasn't like that. I mean, it's another reason why I'm glad I don't, I want to try and, I don't want to, I just want um, things to not be too stressful when she's in high school. That's what I want. Well, you know, as long as you're cognizant of it, I bet you, you know, as long what I'm trying to say is at least you're conscious of it. So I'm sure if if that's the case, then... um, you'll be helpful in that way. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I'm just going to do my best and we'll see. We'll, and make sure, you know, help, and hope, I'm hoping that it'll just work itself out. But, but it's, it's, um, I have such vivid memories of that age that it's, um, that I will be very sympathetic to her. All right. You well, know? before, you know, let's talk about Stone Arabia because, uh, I have, I have some questions that I want to, uh, ask you about. Like, one of the things, like you know, one of the things about the book and one of the things about your work in general, is uh, is that there seems to be like a a through line. Like you seem to really be interested in identity, like as a mm. ma- as a major theme of uh, of your work. And then you know, mm-hmm. the other the other part of it that really strikes me is that you know, uh, you, it's it's about the creative uh, person. You know, like the mm. the way that there are so many people out there who are trying to become these artists and, you know, this is the water that I swim in as a writer. I'm constantly mm-hmm, talking, mm-hmm. talking to writers and you know, sure. hearing about their, their plight and whatnot. And, you know, so many people who set out to make movies or become musicians or become actors or become writers, like wind up either never making it or not making it in the way, like most people don't make it in the way that they had hoped, which is to have some sort of like fantastic success and gigantic readership or whatever. Right. Um, and, you know, with Stone Arabia, like I, I was kind of like thinking about that and then thinking about, um, you know, the work that you do as a teacher. And I'm sure, you know, you know, a million writers like what was the impetus? Like, is that kind of how it started where you're you're wondering about, you know, how people create their uh, sense of themselves, their identities and, you know, through art. And, you know, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, um, I definitely uh, uh, had some real life inspirations for the book. Um, I usually do for my books for some reason. And, um, my, uh, some people in my life, uh, and my family are, um, kind of, uh, garage musicians or basement musicians and, uh, keep making, uh, music and putting out records and just kind of, uh, going forward, um, and without a very big audience. And I just really, um, there's a kind of purity to that that's very exciting and um, interesting to me. And I think it's a way of keeping, I mean, it's just, uh, and it's just, they do other things to make a living and they just keep this part of their, uh, they keep this alive. They don't give up on it. And I think it's part of, of their surviving coping strategy. Um, Now the person in the book, Nick is a very exaggerated version of this, but he's inspired by my stepfather who um, has kept a, a, a chronicle like Nick does of his life as a, as a, where he's this really successful musician. Um, and uh, so I got that idea from Richard. And uh, 
um, Nick's music's very different. His personality's different. Uh, but that idea of like creating an alternative universe in which you're a big success as a way of kind of building in your own audience, uh, I like that idea. Um, I, I exaggerated him, even though he's a pretty eccentric guy, my stepfather, but I exaggerated him in the sense that Nick does these elaborate negative reviews, which my <laughs> stepfather doesn't do. But I, <laughs> I think he gave himself one, my stepfather gave himself one, um, like one sentence bad review where he sort of said, this is shit or something. And I just took that and I was like, okay, he's going to actually have these fully elaborate um negative reviews uh, well, even like a character himself. even like a even like a critic who's got it in for him or like you know yeah yeah exactly so i kind of exaggerated some of that stuff and i made him much more ex- you know eccentric in terms of music richard is more of a pop you know uh, singer songwriter um but richard has done that same thing where he's put out 30 records he never stops making music and he makes the liner notes and he makes the label and he has all these labels um and what was fun about that is i got to make up uh, you know, another world. So when you write a novel, you're making up a world. And then I got to make up a world within the novel. So it had to be sort of a little bit fake because it's supposed to be made up in the novel. And so that was really fun. And, um, and I could, and just coming up with the names of all the bands and the names of the, uh, labels and the the different critics. So that was really fun. Yeah. Come, come um, but, you up know, with the band book- names is fun. I think, you know, it is. I mean, I have, I worked in a record store when I was in Seattle, when I first moved up there. So I've always had a big, uh, record collection and and always been really interested in music so that was fun and part of and my husband's a musician and he does this too so a lot of times I would get help from him I'd say well you know what do you think about this for a band name and or what do you think about that um and uh and he gave me um two song titles I use in the book too and uh uh so I so I did so it was inspired by a lot of people in my life and it was also about me though I mean it was sort of this idea of you know I was talking about how I didn't want to wait for somebody else to help me make my thing I wanted to be self-contained well sort of that that idea where you create a world in which you can be creative and you can do your thing and it doesn't matter if anybody else gets it It doesn't matter if anybody else likes it it's just to keep you whole to keep you sane because the world is coming down on you and there's these terrible terms and we're all going to die and you've got to find a way to be engaged and and to do your thing and so he's doing that to a certain extent and um and sort of novel writing is like that it's it's a little private universe in which you're you know you're god and um and you create uh, this imaginary place and it kind of keeps you sane well it's and so is i mean it also it also speaks to me on the at the level of like social media were you thinking a lot about like the internet at all when you were even though you know the the chronicles or whatever aren't necessarily like web based like i feel like people and, and i mean I, I, this is a big reach so uh, you know, no, no, as no. far as comparison goes, like I think about like the show Miley Cyrus, like I think I read some essay about the uh, Hannah Montana phenomenon, which was actually really astute. And it made it, it made it make sense to me because previ- I had never seen it. But I was like, why is this so popular? And you know, it's about this like uh, girl who by day is sort of this like geeky high school student. And then by night, she's like this rock star. And it spoke. Right. To, it spoke, I don't know this show, but yeah, but it spoke to the way that like kids today, I think you know, wander the halls of their schools and uh, feel all awkward and you know out of sorts during the day, and then by night they're on like you know uh, Facebook or whatever, and they get to kind of create and curate their identity. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it speaks to all. Absolutely, that. no, absolutely, and and I think you know the the book is deliberate. It's set in 2004, 
and in the pre-Facebook age, but still, you know, the internet. And um, and Nick is a Luddite, and he never uses the internet. But his sister, who narrates the book, is a big internet person. She's constantly. Um, and so I was kind of very, I'm always very interested in, in sort of technology and how it changes us and how it affects us and what it's like to be alive right now. And, um, and so sometimes the past is a good way to get at what's going on right now. Yeah. So a lot of his stuff was made in the seventies, but it's just kind of, he's like his own internet. He's a pretty, you know, he curates himself and all that. But it, I think that, um, that it is it is part of this cultural moment for sure. And, um, and I think that what we were talking about earlier about moving around and how people do move around more, you do have a kind of fluidity in your identity. And one of the reasons why I think I'm so interested in it is because I moved around so much and I became very self-conscious of how you create an impression on other people. Yeah. Um, I became a student of it because I saw instantly sort of, because I was always an outsider, I could sort of see, oh, here's the popular kids at this school, and here's the losers at this school, and here's the, the, the geeks. And I, and I could see the sort of um, <clears throat> structural, uh, bigger picture, while somebody who's just in that world may not know that that's what happens in all high schools, and here's another version of it. So I'm constantly, I, I was always exposed to different versions of sort of um, uh, people, and I, I always thought that I would be able to, I like the idea of going to a new place and having a new chance to make an impression. And you could, no, I don't want to be so, um, I want to change the way I look. So now I'm going to wear black all the time at my new school or whatever. It might not be that self-conscious, but you know, those opportunities to reinvent yourself. So I think that's partially why I got, I get sort of fixated on that. And then, and then eat the document, the woman actually makes new identity. She goes underground. So yeah, it definitely is, um, uh, something that seems to come up again and again, um, and it also, I think, has to, it, as you say, with the. Um, I, I wonder what it's like to be a kid now. It's so different from when I was growing up. I don't know how old you are, but you know, I'm 44. So when I was growing up, um, if I had had access to other people on the internet, it might have been. I might have been happier. I would have found like-minded people. I, I would have I seen the bigger world sooner. I always. You know? I'm, I'm 36, and I, I always say, like, God, if I would have had social media and blogging and the internet when I was in high school. I, w- I might have actually like had dates and stuff, you know, because like I was so much right. more, so much more comfortable, like you know, I would have been so much more comfortable approaching uh, girls that way, that as opposed to like walking up to them in the hall and you know, ugh. I was yeah. not, not good at that. But on the other hand, they also, I mean, I have a friend whose daughter was uh, ganged up on on the on Facebook oh, right. by these girl, mean girls. Yeah. There's like a lot more opportunities for all this mean girl stuff and i don't know what the boy equivalent of it is i'm sure there is some boy equivalent of you know sort of a bullying and um uh and also just people that that whole presentation of self i mean there's something about facebook i don't think i'm I'm going on a limb here it's quite superficial right it's really based on you know a kind of um it's very shallow so it's all about you see i see a lot of young women with putting all these posy pictures of themselves on the internet um, on Facebook and then, you know, people racking up 3000 friends, you know, these 16 year olds or whatever. It's because this is, re- this is not really in, incon- no one really understands this. And yet here our children are, you know, using it. And, and I'm kind of the old fuddy duddy. I'm very, um, I'm very, uh, I have a lot of skepticism about new technology. And, um, so, 
social media, I'm very skeptical. I get a bad feeling when I'm on it. I sort of think, this kind of, you know, it, yeah. I use it, uh, yeah. but I have deep ambivalence about I, it. It I, feels weird, I feel you know? Good. I feel, yeah, I don't, I don't, I use it for work and occasionally, like, you know, if I have something goofy to say, I'll say that, but like, the constant tweeting, like the, I, I don't, I can't do it. It makes me crazy, and it makes me, fe- and like, like you say, in some way, way that I can't quite define, it makes me feel uh, bad <laughs> or sad or something, you know, like. Right, it makes me feel sad or itchy yeah. or something. Like, yeah. eh, I don't know why I just, and I always feel this great regret, like ah, I shouldn't have posted that. Uh, take it down or just ah, oh, why I need to go off Facebook, but but there are a lot of people. The only way I can reach them is through Facebook. Well, so you know, I go on, I go on once a week, I would say, and I sort of look around and I get all freaked out and I leave. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at least you're consistent. Check if I have messages or something like that. Well, <laughs> no, I get I get things in my email when I get messages, so I don't miss that. But it, but it's just it's yeah, it's weird, right? And I have a, a I have a page for Stone Arabia, and that's weird too because I I post stuff about Stone Arabia, but I feel like everyone knows it's me, so it's just me posting about myself, <laughs> and that seems lame. <laughs> like if it's Stone Arabia posted that this review, it's like no, Dana did, and why is she telling everyone about herself again? You need again, to get you know? your daughter to do that for God's sakes. Put her to work you know. <laughs> so that whole you know that whole sort of projecting of self um is weird yeah you know yeah, yeah, yeah. you just it's it's hard for me to deal with it. it doesn't feel private enough for me um it's too social social media is too social <laughs> or, or, or or the thing about it though the thing about it is that like i, I i'm now at the point i think that's kind of why i do this podcast is that it's like i like to to be social with people but like let's do it on the level and like have a conversation like all this like, you know, presenting of self and like, here are my vacation photos and like, look how witty I am and look who I'm tweeting at. And like, you know, it's just like, oh God, right. you know, that's the part of it that like starts to feel like a junior high school lunchroom to me. And it just makes me want to like run in the other direction. you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And then who, and then also who, you never know what your audience, I mean, what is this, who is this a message to? Right. Right. Yeah. Which of your 500 friends addressed? <laughs> right. Um, and why don't you just send it to them? You know. And so it's very strange. Yeah. I don't think we've all figured it out. I don't think it's. I think it's strange. And then it's weird because Mark Zuckerberg is kind of, he's creating the internet within the internet in which he's controlling the universe. And I was like, why am I in Mark Zuckerberg's universe? You know, I'm right. a novelist. I want to be in my own. That's the whole thing. I'm creating my own little weird world, and I don't want to be in this place. I don't like the way it looks. I don't like the way it changes, and I don't like that I'm not in control. So I'm I'm totally ill-equipped for the that world, I think. And maybe my child will not be. She'll feel very comfortable there and just say, well, this has nothing to do with identity. It just is what it is. Get over it. It's just Facebook, you know, Mom. Relax. Use it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> use it. Don't interrogate it and, you know, flip out about it. But that's, that's you know, but I sort of feel like that's my job, you know. Yeah. So uh, Don DeLillo is a fan of your work. Is that, is that correct? I mean, he's blurbed your work. I'm just, and I, I feel like there's a, 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 there is a similarity to the the way that you guys approach fiction and the way that you sort of address mm-hmm. you address the culture in your work, and you're like really deep, mm-hmm. you think about it. You know, you're deeply interested mm-hmm. in it. Like, how did you? Uh, did he? I mean, did he read you and then like, you know, say send you a nice note or like how did that happen? I'm just curious. Well, he's friends. He's friends with Gordon Lish. Okay. And so when I was working at the Quarterly. Uh, he would call and um, have conversations, and I met him through Gordon. Uh, and um, and when I had my book, I sent it to him. Okay. And uh, he liked it. 
and he's i mean he's a big influence on me as you say he you very you're you've right on the money it was this idea of addressing you know that 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 the the, the culture as a whole would be part of the subject um and you you know writing something that 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 is really um talking to the whole culture uh, rather than trying to make like a 19th century realist novel or something. Just something that sort of reflects this moment in some formally and content-wise and all these other things. Yeah. And not being afraid of, of kind of just getting in there. And, um, and being ambitious about it, you know? Um, being ambitious about uh, ri- rising to the, to the moment. And also just, it's a way of answering back. Because otherwise, you're, you know, it feels as if you're getting... Um, just uh, obliterated, and 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 that's kind of what I talk about in Stone Arabia. The, the the sister narrator is always sort of experiencing the world too much and doesn't have any way to sort of uh, negotiate her relationship to it. So she's overwhelmed, and it's whether it's data stuff on the internet or whether it's watching TV or whether it's her, this the 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 sufferings of others, um, and she's just paralyzed and, and, and quite fragile. And she's sort of, part of the book is her attempts to answer back in some ways. Well, what about her brother research? is sort of in retreat, you know? So, uh, research. Yeah. So like, like Delillo uses a lot of research of, too. In terms of just like, you know, cause like when it, when it comes to like addressing the culture and like, you know, taking on like this big job, frankly, as a writer to try to get inside there and to try to understand it, Rather than kind of like looking at it from the outside, like actually like kind of immersing yourself in it and then trying to say something about it in fiction. Like I'm curious to know, like, do you do like really pointed research in order to try to understand it or do you just get inside of your story and then, you know, does it happen more intuitively? Um, It's both. I mean, I do do a lot of research. I do like to read a lot about what I'm interested in. And most of it doesn't end up in the book, but I write the book while I'm doing it. So it's not, it's, it's, so it's, the relationship isn't direct the way it would be with a scholar. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll just sort of, I kind of get in the mood. I'm really interested in this. I'll start reading all these memoirs of people who lived underground, let's say, or for Stone Arabia, I was reading a lot of, looking at a lot of art books from outsider artists. I was thinking a lot about visual artists more than musicians, even though he's a musician. So I was looking at all these collages and thinking about that and, um, and now he's reading and reading architecture books about Los Angeles and trying, so everything. And then actually going to the places I'm writing about and walking around and taking pictures. And uh, so I, I, I do spend a lot of time researching. It gives me a, it gives me permission to do what I want to do. So I, I feel I have enough authority to talk about something I need to do. And I think it's kind of a weakness in a sense because it takes me a long time to do stuff because I feel I have to, I'm so ignorant. I have to, you know, read a lot before I can think about something. Um, but I also think it's just my, my, my way of working. I just like to immerse myself like an actor might. So I'm, I, you know, like I'm a method writer. I want to be surrounded by this subject matter. And then when I speak, it'll feel organic, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, you have to let it, like, it has to kind of work on your subconscious and, and exactly. Yeah. And whatnot. Uh, well, so you're giving yourself all this stimulant, all these things you're just consuming in some way, or you know, movies and music and all of that. You're kind of creating a, a feeling in yourself, and then uh, and then the language has some of that in it in some weird way. You don't have to make it; it's not too conscious. It just sort of comes out. Yeah. Well, it's it's fascinating, and uh, you know, congratulations on all your success. I mean. It's, Oh, well, thank Stone you. Stone Arabia has done great. The other books uh, have done wonderfully too. And 
you know, I didn't even get to talk about when you you went to Italy for a year, didn't you? Yeah, for the American Academy in Rome. And I have to say, I mean, I, the the literary, the people, you know, I've been gotten a lot of support for these books, and um, and I think I write kind of weird books, and so it's been, and the, and and people like you and people uh, on all these blogs have given me so much support, and you know, it just gives me a lot of hope because. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, that the people are still interested in the novel. They're still interested in these in this in weird books and in and odd things, and and they try to understand them and and uh, and and to get that kind of response is just it's so overwhelming to me. It makes me very excited about. I mean, I'm not one of these people who's real pessimistic about the novel. I kind of feel people, really smart people, pay attention and they write about it. It's, and they're interested in it. And it's just so great, you know. So I'm so grateful to you for having a show like this. I mean, this is so – it's a kind of an exciting time to be a writer, I think. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, you know, it's like it's wide open, you know. And uh, I think that books like yours that actually deal with the culture head on, That's I think that's a big reason why – the response is so great. I mean, A, the books are, are beautifully done, but it's also, I think people are starving for fiction that really addresses that stuff, addresses the world as it is, as you say, you know, and uh, sometimes I feel like uh, books don't go deeply uh, enough into it or they don't really uh, get immersive in that way or they try to kind of stand outside of it and comment on it. Uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that might Yeah, be- no, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm- well, I'm I'm very pleased and and uh, it's good. I mean, and it's fun to. It's also just I think um, you know a lot of ch- a lot of changes are going on in publishing and a lot of changes are going on in and uh, and so it's it's easy to get pessimistic because you hear the book sales are way down and all that stuff. But on the other hand, there is a lot of potential and a lot of activity too, where people have. Um, where you can reach, a, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening at the margins, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and hopefully, yeah, I feel yeah. kind of, that's, that's kind of what this is. <laughs> hopefully. Yeah, no, and it's great. And I, you're kind of, um, I don't know if you're going to, you, you kind of remind me with your opening monologue, your storytelling, you kind of remind me of that guy, the, um, Mark Marin. Do you yeah. know him? Yeah. Yeah. No, I love Yeah. Show. He does that too. Like he does. He's a great show. And it's, like, it's like audio. Podcast, I, totally. I feel like it's audio blogging. That's why, how I always describe it. But like, I feel like you know, if you want to build an audience, you sort of have to let people know who you are, you know. And, and I'm a writer, so I just have to kind of yeah. Well, you're good. At, you're a good storyteller, and it's um, and it's fun because you know it's different from the usual thing. Yeah. Cool. So, and I think his his podcast has done really well for comedians. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully mm-hmm. this show can you know have a fraction of that success. You know, in terms of reaching right. people, but. Uh, I have just, I've so enjoyed talking to you and, uh, I, you know, wish you all the best going forward and, uh, the book Thank is called you. Stone Arabia. Thank you so much, Dana. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. There you have it. That's Dana Spiata. The book once again is called Stone Arabia. It's available right now in hardcover from Scribner and you can find Dana online at danaspiata.com. Spiata is spelled S-P-I-O-T-T-A. She also has a Facebook presence if you want to Facebook her. Uh, this show has a website. It's called otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at uh, otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook page if you want to Facebook the show. And if you want to email me directly and tell me a story or file a complaint, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. So closing thoughts, final thoughts quickly. Uh, magic boogers, my brain, what was going through my brain back uh, back in the day when I was 20. 
you know, it's funny. I look back at myself at that time and it's impossible not to see an innocent, you know, which, which is to say it's impossible not to see uh, a sort of fool, you know, but I, I think a likable fool, hopefully a likable fool. And uh, what's funny and sort of tragic uh, at the same time is the fact that I thought I was worldly, you know, as a lot of 20 year olds uh, tend to uh, tend to think of themselves. And of course, I didn't know much of anything. And what's funny is that I thought it was going to work. <laughs> I thought uh, I'm going to get out of college and I'm going to ride this fantastical story of magical head colds and talking boogers right to the top. It's going to happen. And, uh, you know, looking back on it, it's sort of heartbreaking. Not that it didn't work, uh, but the fact that I was so convinced that it would, you know, it just sort of it tugs at me. So, uh, you know, I think the premise of the whole thing is good. I still believe that a boy with a magical head cold uh, could get children excited all over the world. But the execution uh, is the key. And uh, back then, you know, the writing wasn't so good. I think that's true. So maybe at some point I'll go back in and I'll tinker with it. I still have it somewhere lying around. And, uh, you know, I, I remember I used to dream about merchandising. I actually thought of that stuff. You know, I'm always way ahead of myself, especially back in the day. Uh, I was thinking about, uh, like, little magnificent goo dolls and how they would be a huge hit with kids. And uh, I was thinking of, like, the little Roy doll that would shoot creatures out of its nose. So, uh, yeah, you can think I'm crazy all you want, folks. I think I'm misunderstood. I will choose to believe that. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, what's my resolution? I do have one. I really do have a resolution for this year. I made one, but I'm not I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going public with it. I'm superstitious. Uh, I don't want to make a resolution and then mess with uh, the cosmos by talking about it and then have it be thwarted. I don't want it to be thwarted. I want to avoid thwarting at all costs. Uh, and so that's the key in 2012 right there. Whatever you do, do not be thwarted.